If you have a Bible, um, do turn up the book of 1 Samuel. I said a couple of weeks ago we were having a bit of a marathon in three chapters. Uh, and last week was a bit of a sprint, one chapter. We're back to a marathon tonight. Um, we're going to look at chapters 13 to 15. They really fit together as a, a little unit. So 1 Samuel 13 to 15. We are going to read through the sermon quite big chunks of that, um, but intersperse them with... Um, the sermon itself, just to break it up and to help us understand where we are. So uh, you'll hear a booming voice from the microphone. That's not God, it's Wellesley. Uh, he'll be reading to us um, through parts of the sermon. But we're going to look at this together. As we do that, I'd love to pray. There's a lovely little phrase in the book of Ezra. Ezra is a story um, about a man who God called, who helped to galvanize God's people when they'd been away in exile, and they came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And there's a lovely little verse which says, Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Of course, we're not building a physical house in Jerusalem, but we are building God's spiritual house. And so a good prayer for us tonight as we come to this passage would be that God would move our hearts, that we would understand everything in this, these great chapters and be moved by them. So let me pray as we come to 1 Samuel 13. Father, thank you for everything we've been able to learn together in this great book of 1 Samuel. And I pray tonight that as was the case in the time of Ezra, you would move each of our hearts, that we would indeed be better prepared to build your house this week. Please help us understand the things that are difficult in these chapters. Please give us humility to accept the challenges of these chapters. And may we be encouraged too as we're thrown onto Jesus, who we see very clearly at the end of our reading. So be with us now, Lord, and bless the preaching of this word uh, to each of our hearts, I pray. Amen. Great. Well, um, let me recap uh, from last week. This is something we looked at last week, why, why God gives us commands. And we looked at three things, didn't we? God gives us commands in the context of a relationship. God gives us commands for our flourishing. And God gives us commands to remind us that he is Lord. And that's what we thought about last week. And then we had this verse which I wanted us to go away with. Remember the challenge as we looked at this verse was to go away and at 10 o'clock on Monday morning, we were all going to try and remember this verse um, and hopefully it was going to encourage us. So there's a chance now if you want, if there was something significant that this verse helps you with this week or indeed at 10 o'clock, if you just want to share a very brief little story, um, Wellesley's got a mic and he'd be happy to run around. I'd love just to hear one or two people for whom this verse was significant this week. So if anyone would like to share, just um, stick your hand up. Okay, I'm not going to embarrass the person, but someone came to me this morning and said, I was really helped by that verse, and it really helped me in my week, and it was a great verse. And they said to me, it's a verse that I would have just scanned over if I'd read the whole chunk, but I was really pleased that you highlighted it because it's made a big difference to me. So there's an encouragement from one of you. Well, here that was the high, I guess, and we very deliberately ended on verse 24. But if you notice in your Bibles... Go back to chapter 12, verse 25. What comes after this great encouragement, which we finished on, was in many ways a kind of warning. And that warning is summarized really in that white box on the screen. Uh, The verse 24, the encouragement, was in the yellow box. But 25 really tells the opposite, the antithesis. If I don't put God first, if I don't fear him, then I won't be able to serve him faithfully with all of my heart because my focus will be on my own success. And if I stop considering the great things he has done for me, 
And I won't be able to serve him in light of all that he's done. So verse 24 and verse 25 do come together. And 25 tees up where we're going to be going this week. What I'd like to do tonight is just to show us three errors, I guess, that Saul makes in chapters 13 to 15. In many ways, I think three dangers for us in our church. And it would be really good for us to reflect on these dangers. Reflect on them corporately and in our own hearts. And then at the end, we're going to look at how God again responds to our failure. The first mistake that Saul makes in our passage is he doesn't trust in God's timing. So Wellesley's going to read to us chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Then they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Great. Well, you read that and you think, well, how does that illustrate that Saul is not trusting in God's timing? Doesn't really seem that he did anything wrong. But if you're, if you remember back to chapter 10, I wouldn't expect you to remember this specific verse, but chapter 10, verse 8 said this. I'll stick it on the screen. This was a very specific command that Saul had been given by Samuel. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And here's the big, this is significant. But you, Saul, must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Well, Saul is there and he has waited seven days. He's in the place that Samuel told him to be. He's waited seven days. And no doubt he's watching his watch. And he gets up on the seventh day, expecting Samuel to arrive. And as the day goes on and he sees the sun moving across the sky, he keeps kind of figuring out the time of the day. And more and more he's thinking, but Samuel said he was coming. And the day gets later and later and later. And Samuel's still not come. And the sun gets lower and lower in the sky and Samuel's still not there. Often I've reflected this week on some of the prayers I've prayed over the years. God's been incredibly faithful and answered many prayers. But the significant thing I thought of this week is very rarely has he answered my prayers 
in my timing. I'm sure we've all had experiences like that. God's timing and our timing is so completely different. And I think, as I've reflected on why that might be in my life, I'm convinced that part of the reason is that God is teaching me to wait. I will answer your prayer, but I want to do something in you first. And sometimes waiting is the most important thing that I want to teach you. And perhaps here with Saul, as Samuel gave him this command to go to this place and wait seven days, he's saying, wait, wait, keep trusting. And of course, as the sun gets lower and lower in the sky on that seventh day, he's thinking more and more, it's not going to happen. Samuel's never going to come. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. We'll have a look down to chapter 13 and we'll have 11 to 14 read. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Let's have a look at verses 11 and 12. What's the repeated word that shows us what Saul's error was? Do you see it in there? Three times you get this word, I. Saul says, I saw, I thought, I felt compelled. What Saul is doing is he's not seeing God at work. He's not seeing Samuel coming when he said he would come. So he says, I'll take my sins in my own hands. He was going to come and offer a sacrifice. He's not here. I know he told me to wait, but I can't wait. So I'm going to do it myself. He wasn't trusting in God's timing. It's very easy to trust God, isn't it? When things in our life are going well. And in many ways, it's because we don't actually have to trust Because life is just working, so trust isn't really trust. The really hard thing in our life is to keep trusting when we can't see God at work, when we don't feel that God is near. It's much, much harder. But the big question we all have to ask ourselves is, am I ruled by my circumstances? Are they the things that determine how I live my life? Or am I going to have a a steadfast assurance in who God is and what he has said? Because we all run the very real risk of not trusting God's timing in our own lives. But here's the irony. There's a little bit of humor in the passage in verse 10. Just as he finished making the offering, look who shows up. Samuel does. Probably coming right at the very end of the day. Because in God's economy, it's one of his ways he's saying, Samuel did come just as he said he would. He just didn't come in your timing. And as you saw the day getting later and later and later, what did you do? You took things into your own hands. But you should have waited because he did come. If you've ever played um, competitive sport and you've ever been put through sort of serious fitness, you'll know the feeling that I've often experienced with my coaches over the years where they give you an exercise to do uh, and it's really, really painful. And as you go through the different uh, levels of the exercise, your lungs burn more and more, your legs get heavier and heavier. And you might say have three of these exercises to do and the first one's painful, the second one's ridiculously painful, and the third one you just want to pass out. But you get to the end of the third set of exercises And there's this great relief. The coach has said, you're going to do this three times. And you collapse on the floor at the end of the third one. 
And then you're ready to grab your water bottle and go in and have a shower. And then what does a good coach do? You're going to do it again. And you groan and you get up and you go and do it again. But why is the coach good? Because he knows, she knows, that by pushing you that extra bit, that's where the real gains come. In a match when you're really competitive, the gains come, the real fitness comes when you really put in the hard yards when you were most hurting. And sometimes with God, it may be like that in prayer, that he asks us to wait and to wait and to keep waiting. And it gets more and more painful and it gets harder and harder to trust because what he's trying to do is strip away all those layers of self-reliance to say, will you trust me? Because I will turn up. And that's the real danger that Saul fell into. So we need to think about that for our own life. Are we in danger of not trusting in God's timing? The second danger, which is again a very live danger in uh, our lives, is not trusting that this is God's work. Uh, at the front of my Bible, um, I've got a little card, and on it I write down little phrases, um, things I learn, things I read, mistakes I make, people who share things with me that I find are really helpful, and I often read them. Uh, if I ever die one day, well, I will die one day. If you ever read the front of my Bible, it will tell you things that for me are really significant. One of the things came in a devotion I read a few years ago, and I forget the name of the lady who was writing the devotions, but they were brilliant. And she said this, and I remembered it because I really needed to hear it, and it's scribbled in the front of my Bible. She said this, this is his work, why am I making it mine? His yoke is easy, why am I making it hard? I just find those words really helpful when... There's a great danger in my life that I want to do things on my own strength. I come back to the front of my Bible, I read those words, and they really help me. Well, let's have a look at Saul and how he didn't trust that it was God's work. Chapter 13, verse 15. And went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah in Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth Horon, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zoyim, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plough points, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plough points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. And jump to chapter 14, verse 23. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Thank you. You read all this stuff about sharpening of weapons and the fact they had to go down to the Philistines. And you think, why in the world is this in the Bible? And more importantly, what in the world, what in the world does that mean to me? The really significant thing is the writer is very deliberately drawing attention to the Israelites, saying they didn't have weapons and they're just about to go to war. But why does he do that? He's trying to make the point that the victory that God is going to bring about will be God's victory. 
And they're not going to win it through having the best weapons. They're going to win it because God is with them. Do you see in verse chapter 14, verse 23, it says, The Lord rescued Israel that day. But look at the very next verse that wasn't read. What mistake does Saul make? Straight after this little reminder that it's the Lord who gave him the victory. What does Saul say? Before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Yes, he's leading God's people, but here he takes the mistake and thinks, I need to win this victory. This is mine to win. It's my work. Yes, God's called me and put me as leader over my people, but I'm going to be the one who wins it. And he makes the very real mistake that each of us can make in different ministries in our lives of making God's work our own work. I was trying to think about ways of applying this. I guess there's all sorts of things we could say here. It's certainly true that sometimes in churches we try too hard to maintain ministries that have been really fruitful at one season of life. And we feel it would be completely and utterly wrong to park them and try something new. But we must never become precious about a ministry because ministries in the church aren't what matter. What matters is giving God honor. And sometimes he brings a particular ministry to an end to be able to enable a new one to start. Now, of course, we've just spoken about being patient and trusting God's timing. It doesn't mean that as soon as one ministry gets difficult, we just can it and do something else. But it's worth thinking through. Are we too quick to hang on to something feeling this is my thing, this is my work, and not actually letting God's spirit lead us as a church in what he wants us to be doing. Think about your own frustration with uh, loved ones that you pray for to come to faith. You pray bold prayers, claiming the promises of God for someone to come to a saving faith in Jesus. And many of you will have prayed for years and years and years. And perhaps all that you've seen is people's hearts getting harder and harder and harder. That can be unbelievably difficult. But maybe one of the reasons that God allows us to go through that process is again to remind us again and again, this is my work, he's saying. Yes, keep praying. But you're not the one who's going to change the heart of your friend or that family member. I am. And I'm going to make you keep trusting in me because then one day you might see my glory if I choose to act in their life. Think about praying. If you have a very busy day, the very first thing that's almost certainly going to go is prayer, isn't it? I forget a little poem, but it says something like, I had so much to do in the day that I first had to stop and pray. It's a much longer poem, but I couldn't remember more than those two lines, so I'll give you that much. That's the punchline, though. But if we rush into the day because I've got so much I've got to do to please God, to use my gifts to serve him, it's all good things. The great danger is, it's my work done in my strength. Perhaps one of the most significant things about stopping and praying isn't even the words that we pray. It's the fact that we've stopped. Think about the busyness of our lives and how much we just rush around, probably so often doing good things. Sometimes God just wants to say, stop. Be still. Know that I'm God. And maybe the very most powerful thing that prayer can be for your life isn't even the words that you pray, but the fact that you stop to pray. And God is doing something to recalibrate your heart in that moment of quiet. I guess another illustration from praying. I think, I don't just mean this church. I think in a lot of churches we talk a lot about prayer. We're not so good at praying. I think often we talk a lot in prayer meetings about the things we're about to pray for. Rather than just getting down and praying. And as we pray, tell people what's on our heart. 
need to remember that we must be doing our ministries in the strength that God gives. Saul made that very real mistake straight after being reminded that it was God's victory. What does he do? He takes everything into his own hands. This is my victory. I'm going to win it. But that's a very real danger. If you took chapter 13, 14 and 15 as one big piece, I don't, I don't know if you see the little sandwich pattern. In chapter 14, you get this God-given victory, which we've just read of. But in chapter 13, you get the failure of Saul. And in chapter 15, you get the failure of Saul. So in 13, what was his failure? He failed to trust in God's timing. So he rushed ahead to do this sacrifice and didn't went for Samuel. Chapter 14 is this great victory. What comes in the next chapter? It's Saul's failure to trust that it was God's work. And in many ways, if you take this little sandwich of two examples of failure and in the middle, an example of God's faithfulness, they're meant together to form a little package that says to us, don't make the same mistake that Paul made, uh, that Saul made twice. If we go back to the slide I showed you earlier, in yellow there is the verse that encourages us to live our lives remembering all that Christ has done, living our lives by his grace. But the white box is telling us what happens if we make that mistake. And that was, I think, a, a very real mistake that Saul made. Not just failing to trust in God's timing, but also failing to trust that it's God's work. But the third thing we see in our passage is that Saul failed to trust that God would provide for his needs. And we often fail to trust that God will provide for our needs. So let's have a look at chapter 15. And verses 1 to 11. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night 
So do you notice uh, the command that God gave Saul in verse 3? What was the command? He commanded him to totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Now, I don't want to go into detail here, but that little phrase, totally destroy, is a very significant word in the Hebrew. It's the word harem, and it means something very significant. It literally means devoted to destruction. But it was the idea that when God was calling his people to go against his enemies, he called them to totally destroy. He was saying, because of their disobedience, I've completely set that people apart to be destroyed. And you must completely destroy them. Not because I'm a bad God, but because they have repeatedly disobeyed me. And so he says to his people, you must completely wipe them out. And by doing so, it's a sign of your complete obedience to me. So totally destroy them. That's the command he gave to Saul. But notice verse 9. How did Saul fail to trust God? It says, verse 9, Saul and the army spared everything that was good. You can imagine them, can't you? They, they march into this foreign land to destroy the enemies. And they have in the back of their mind the command that God had to destroy them. But they forget the reason for this total destruction is it's God's judgment falling on this people. And so as they go about slaughtering God's enemies, no doubt they see things that the God's enemies possess. Wealth, weapons. Money, food, artifacts, things that they can gain for themselves. So in their minds, they're thinking, we can win this battle for God, but what can we kind of sift off the top for ourselves? Maybe we can make a bit of money from this. We can gain something for ourselves rather than fully trusting in God. Think about that parallel in your own life. How often do we fail to trust God for all of our needs? Uh, You might uh, hear a command like, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength, or have no other gods before me. And, and, And you and I would say in our hearts, yes, yes, that's a good command. I want to believe that God can be first in my life. But if we stop and we're honest with ourselves, how often is there someone else or something else, which if we're really honest, is on a par with God? Yes, God's Lord, but if I'm honest, someone else is too. I wouldn't want to lose my Lord, but I wouldn't want to lose this person either. We can kind of obey, but there's always a sort of modification. Yes, but. What about an issue of trust? We can be generous with our time, opening up our homes, generous with our money. But so often that generosity never really pushes us beyond the point of pain. We give out of our wealth. We give out of the time that God has given us. But so often it's not actually that sacrificial. For some people it will be, but you have to ask ourselves in our own hearts, are we being really sacrificial? Because if we're not, we're not really trusting in God. We're not really trusting he'll provide. You know what it's like when you pray on a busy day and maybe you pray, Lord, give me the ability today to trust you. I don't want to go into work and panic. And you, you pray that calm prayer in the car and then you walk into the office. What just happens two minutes later? And we all do it. We forget we've just prayed that prayer. But in that moment, I've prayed just a moment ago about trusting God for the provision for that day. But a second later, I've forgotten all about it. And I default to anxiety. I default to worry. But what am I doing in all of that mix? Again, I'm failing to trust that God will provide for all my needs. Well, how does chapter 15 really summarize the dangers that overcame Saul? We're going to read a bigger chunk now and the final reading from chapter 15, verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. 
There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Samuel Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin, and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord." But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
So if you just look on the screen to the words in white, there's a little summary. Uh, And it would be worth reflecting in your own heart, uh, where do you feel that you run the risk of falling into the same danger of Saul? And perhaps go away and think, where as a church do we fall, run the risk of falling into these dangers? Am I not trusting in God's timing? Am I not trusting that this is God's work? Am I not trusting that God will provide for all of my needs? But you see, in that little reading that Wellesley gave us there, we get a little summary of ultimately why Saul fell, why he made these mistakes. And they come in two verses. Have a look at verse 11. Saul failed to listen, didn't he? He failed to listen to the voice of God. A church that stops listening to God is a church that's going to fall flat on its face very, very quickly. But notice the second mistake. Not only did Saul not listen to God, but verse 12, he didn't serve God's glory. Instead, he was serving his own. And the really sad thing about what we read in chapter 15, verse 12, is back in chapter 11, it was Saul himself who declared, this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Chapter 11, verse 13. And just two chapters later, he's more interested in serving his own glory than he is in serving the God who's repeatedly rescued his people. And so the result is chapter 15, verse 23. If, as Saul did, we reject the word of the Lord, then his judgment is upon us and he will reject us. Now, it's important when we come to a passage like this, there's so much that we can learn about ourselves. And in many ways, I think the mistakes that Saul makes are given to us in the scriptures, held up as a kind of mirror to us for the mistakes that we can make individually perhaps the mistakes that we can make as a church but it's not just a passage that rebukes us and perhaps tells us to try harder because that's going to be no good at all the great thing about this passage is that actually it ends with god's incredible response to our failure and i don't want to still neil's thunder in a couple of weeks time we've got bishop nathan coming next week and then neil's going to take us into chapter 16 but chapter 16 of one summary is Probably one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible, if you're trying to understand the kind of sweep of the scriptures. Because what does, Saul, what does God do in response to the failure of this King Saul? Amazingly in his grace, he gives God's people another king. But this time it's a king after God's own heart. It's an incredible act of grace. And we're going to learn more about that king in the subsequent weeks. But we will learn that this king, though he's better than Saul, he's still fallen and he still makes massive, massive mistakes. But why in this little series on 1 Samuel, indeed, why as we look at the Bible every time it's open, do we make such a big deal of Jesus Christ? The reason is, is because he is the one that the whole Bible is pointing to. So you take every single command in the Bible And all the commands are pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of God's law. Keeping God's law perfectly, because we can't. You think of every appointed king in the scriptures. And they all point forward to the great king, who God has installed in heaven to rule over his world, Jesus Christ. You think of every little act of grace that you see in the scriptures. What do they do? They all point forward to the great act of grace. Where Jesus came and died on a cross and gave himself up that we might have life. You think of every little rescue story all the way through the Bible. And they're all pointing forward to the great rescue. Where Jesus came for us 
And friends, that is the reason that we make much of Jesus Christ. I want to end by reading a few little excerpts from a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached in the 19th century. He was a Victorian, 20th century, he was a Victorian um, pastor in London. Uh, and he, he wrote a very um, helpful essay which became a, a sermon. It was called Christ Himself and No Other. It's a kind of extended illustration, but there's something here for us. So as we reflect on the mistakes that Saul made, which ultimately will throw us onto Jesus Christ, who gives us that second chance, who picks us up, let's be encouraged by the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Christ himself, again I say, and no other. I've been trying to think of what to do if our Lord were gone. Suppose that a man has heard of a great physician who understands his complaint. He's traveled a great many miles to see this celebrated doctor. But when he gets to the door, they tell him he's out. Well, he says, then I must wait till he's in. You need not wait, they reply. His assistant's at home. The suffering man, who's often been disappointed, answers, I don't care about his assistant. I must see the man himself. Mine is a desperate case. But I've heard that this physician has cured the like. I must, therefore, see him. No assistance for me. Well, they say he's out, but there are his books. You can see his books. Thank you, he says, but I can't be content with his books. I need the living man and nothing less. It's him that I must speak to. And from him only will I receive instructions. Do you see that cabinet over there? Yes. Well, it's full of medicines. The sick man answers, I dare say they're very good, but they're no use to me without the doctor. I want their owner to prescribe them for me, or I shall die of my disease. But see, cries one, here's a person who's been cured by him, a man of great experience, who has been made present at every, who has been present at many remarkable operations. Go into the choir room with him, and he will tell you about this mode of cure. The afflicted man answers, I'm much obliged to you, but all your talk only makes me long all the more to see the doctor. I came to see him, and I'm not going to be put off and wait to see anybody else. I must see the man himself for myself. He has made my disease a speciality. He knows how to handle my case, and I will stay till I see him. Now, dear friends, if you're seeking Christ, imitate this dear man, or else you will miss the mark altogether. Never be put off with books or conversations. Never be content with Christian people talking to you, or preachers preaching to you, or the Bible being read to you, or prayers being offered for you. Anything short of Jesus will leave you short of salvation. You have to reach Christ and touch him. Nothing short of this will serve your turn. And a little later on, he gives an illustration about his own preaching. And he says this, we don't set before you something about Christ or something that belongs to Christ, nor something acquired by Christ or someone who has known Christ, nor some truth which extols Christ. We set before you Christ, Christ crucified. I go a little further still, as it must be Christ himself and no other It must also be Christ himself rather than anything Christ gives. When you're very ill, you're pleased to see the doctor. But when you get better, you say to yourself, I shall be glad to see the back of that good man, for that will be a sure sign 
that I'm off the sick list. Ah, but when Jesus heals a soul, you want to see Jesus more than ever. We must never outgrow Christ. We must grow to need him more and more. If you eat a meal, you lose your appetite. But if you feed upon Christ, you hunger and thirst still more after him. Oh, my brothers and sisters, you cannot do without him. Not your gifts, Lord, but yourself. You, you are the desire of my heart. Amen. I need to take a moment of quiet to reflect on the mistakes of Saul, to reflect on the incredible grace of God and reflect on that powerful sermon by Charles Spurgeon who points us to Jesus and says, don't ever rest until he is everything for you.